Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me here today. So I was going to talk about sort of alternative approaches to the traditional undergraduate study um, and then thinking about what, what are these alternatives, um, who are they for, who are they aimed at, who provides them. Um, so thinking about the market, and I know that sort of came up um, this morning talking about the market, so demand from students and supply from institutions. Um, uh, alternative forms of study, um, of uh, routes and, and experiences in HE are are uh, looming large and uh, they're in all the kind of the um, policy documents so this was from the recent white paper so it talks about the fact we've got much more choice and diversity in HE than ever before and then a few paragraphs later it says the courses are still inflexible and based on the traditional model with insufficient innovation so in terms of sort of flexibility what what do we mean by flexibility what are all the alternatives so I've listed some of them here um, Flexibility is, uh, is a complex thing. The Higher Education Academy has been looking at it and they've got lots of different aspects to it. They talk about four levels of flexibility, three concepts of flexibility, and then also dimensions of flexibility, which is the bit I'm sort of been looking at. So in dimensions I've been looking at here are sort of place, where people study, but also pace, when people study. And also to say, there's probably ones missing, so if there's anything you think that I've, I've missed from that map, um, um, and also they are not mutually exclusive, so they are, uh, you can have different aspects of those working together. Um, I can talk about, um, based on the research that I've done recently, um, aspects more related to pace. I can talk about accelerated degrees, uh, credit transfer, and also part-time uh, study. Um, I probably don't have time to talk about all of those three, so I thought I'd probably concentrate on accelerated degrees and credit transfer if that's okay everybody because I know we've been talking about part-time and that's been covered really well. So I can draw on um, some studies that I've been doing recently. So I've been doing some work on alternative study modes for, it started off as work for the Department for Business Innovation and Skills and then they became the HE bit shifted to DfE during the process so the final publication came out as a DfE piece of um, work and that's, that was an interesting study, uh, it sort of was evolving over time in terms of as policy was evolving in terms of what it actually was that they were interested in, what they wanted us to look at. So it started off looking at accelerated degrees and then it moved into also into credit transfer. And really their research question was about what's the current thinking around these alternative modes of study. And that really involved a literature review and some case study work. Um, and then a bigger piece of work on a part-time study which had a research question uh, from the biz perspective, how can part-time undergraduate study act as an alternative for young students. So what could uh, attract younger people to think about part-time study as an alternative to full-time study? Um, so I won't talk about that one though, but that's a, another piece of work that I've done. So before talking about the um, alternative um, forms in, in terms of accelerated degrees and credit transfer, um, it might be worth just touching on the institutional drivers to flexibility in the broader sense. So what the literature says in terms of uh, what might be influencing supply of these types of um, study. So they include things like learner responsiveness, so uh, institutions being able to respond to their student uh, market, but also to employer needs. It's about market segmentation, so it's about universities trying to find new markets uh, or cre create a distinctive offer, so being a bit distinctive in the marketplace. It's about making curriculum accessible to wider and different types of individuals. So that then fits with uh, widening participation ethos. 
Um, it's about the institution's history and tradition, which can act, can act as a facilitator if they talk about being locally uh, minded, engaged with their community, engaged with employers, but it also can act as a barrier in terms of, no, uh, we don't sort of look at alternative modes. Our, our, our mission and our, our, our focus is on um, being the best at what we do. Uh, it's also driven by needs to think about resource efficiency. So to do what we do, uh, but for less money. It can be driven by seed funding. So um, there are various um, funds that have been uh, put out into the market to try and in to try and help institutions take on board these alternative forms of study. So you have things like the Accelerated Intensive, Inten Accelerated Intensive Roots pilot, the Extended Year pilots and the Flexible Learning pilots. And also there's been a, a big policy push around these flexibility as well. So thinking about accelerated degrees, um, there were some issues we had to grapple with when we started thinking about this. Firstly, there's no consistent terminology. So some people say flexible, uh, some people say accelerated degrees, some people say compressed degrees, some people say fast track degrees, some just talk about two year degrees. But accelerated degrees that aren't, don't necessarily have to be full time, you can have part time accelerated degrees as well. And because there's no consistent terminology, there's also no conceptual understanding that's shared. So when somebody talks about accelerated degrees, they might not have the same. Um, image in their mind as to what this actually is. Um, and this is particularly the case um, in the American literature where there's a conflation of intensification with acceleration. And intensification in the American literature is more about a different pedagogy, it's a different way and a different way of engaging with learning. Uh, whereas acceleration in the sort of the, the biz DFE sense is about compression, so doing the same but over a short period of time. Um, there's also an issue around acceleration in terms of um, Instead of starting at the same point and getting to the end point in a short period of time, you accelerate by starting further into the, into the, the course. So that's the sort of credit transfer bit which I'll come to. So that's, that wasn't what Biz meant by accelerated degrees. So we came up with the definition which was um, used by Hefke, and that's the definition we use when we talked about accelerated degrees. So it's really about delivering the same amount of credits as a traditional um, undergraduate degree, the same amount of teaching weeks, it's just that you schedule the teaching across the whole of the um, calendar year rather than just the academic year. And so an essentially a three-year degree gets compressed to a two-year degree. So we looked at the market for accelerated degrees and actually we found it was very difficult to quantify and measure. So when we started looking at this, we thought, well, let's look at who actually, who actually supplies accelerated degrees and then who actually takes it up and you can't find this out in the, in the statistics it's not um, covered in the Hefke or HESA statistics because you can't identify it and it's not recorded and you can't identify as a, as a potential student thinking you might want to study an uh, accelerated course you can't search for it on things like the UCAS um, search course finder so it's actually difficult to locate and therefore measure there's been very limited market research in relation to accelerated degrees and, and one of the studies came up with this quote, which is quite interesting, so that's why it's quite difficult to do. So you're trying to talk to people about something that they don't actually know or understand. So it's quite difficult to do market research. But all of the literature indicates that it's, it's a niche offering in England particularly, um, and the UK. It's, it's more entrenched in other countries that have had 
um, fee paying for a longer period of time. So particularly America, Australia, New Zealand, places like that. So it's seen as a, a niche offering and having limited demand and also limited provision. <coughs> so the supply of accelerated degrees is limited really to large modern universities, those that describe themselves as having innovative provision, that have a widely participation ethos, those that are looking to fill places rather than to try and trim down their applicant pool to select those that they want to take in. Um, private providers, um, some uh, the University of Buckingham, that's a unique selling position. They specialise in accelerated degrees, two years degrees. And it tends to be um, in vocational subjects rather than lab-based subjects, creative subjects or STEM subjects. So it's things like business management, accountancy law, um, Digital, digital media, journalism, sports science, hospitality, those sorts of things. And the literature indicates that it's accelerated degrees, apart from somewhere like Buckingham, are an additional option, so they're not a replacement, they're, so they're added extra to the basket of, of provision that universities have on offer. And, and you have a very um, intractable universities as well who are very reluctant to consider this as a, um, a particular um, thing that they could bring to the market. These are the universities that we found have um, an offering of accelerated degrees. So that's the supply side. In terms of the demand side, so who takes up accelerated degrees and or who are they marketed towards? It's mature students, so generally those of work experience and often they've had prior <coughs> HE experience, so they're the sort of um, second biters rather than second chances. They're often more um, able to cope um, and more able students, so to be able to cope with the increased pressures and demands of working across the entire year. They are seen as more motivated and proactive, so they're wanting to increase their employability and change careers. Um, they may be late starters or late developers in terms of academically. And they might want a different type of experience from a, a traditional HE student, so they want something different. Um, it's also more attractive to or can be aimed at international students because it means they have less time away from home. So in terms of those kinds of um, students that take part in accelerated degrees or are marketed um, towards accelerated degrees, are they really widening participation students? Well, not really. I think the definition of widening participation or the targets for widening participation have shifted. It used to be about mature students, less so now. So it, they're not really widening participation students. So could it be attractive to other students, though? So the evidence around this is limited. As I said, it's quite difficult to identify accelerated degrees in statistics. So the pilot projects indicated that um, some of the earlier pilots, that it was mature and female students that took them up. Um, and then the later pilot, the flexible learning pilots, um, in the um, start of the 20th century, uh, 2005 I think it started, it shifted slightly, so it's young mature, so still mature students but the younger end, and male. Um, and that's based on uh, some statistics that were captured particularly for that project, but you're still only talking about three or four hundred people, so it's not a very um, large sample really. Uh, we also find that black uh, minority ethnic students are overrepresented in the accelerated degree pool, um, but that might be reflecting of the subjects that are offered through accelerated degrees. They don't tend to come from uh, disadvantaged neighbourhoods, so low participation neighbourhoods, 
and they are um, disabled students are very underrepresented in these groups. So in terms of how accelerated degrees are, are sold or could be sold um, to students, um, the the literature suggests that it could be about cost saving. So if you if you're studying for two years rather than three years, uh, you pay two years of fees rather than three years of fees. I should say we did this um, study <laughs> in 2015-2016, so the context has changed. So I'll come back to that in a minute. But um, so it could be about saving a year of tuition fee. Some institutions are quite uh, reluctant to to use that as the as the kind of the sell. What they would prefer to focus on is the fact that you have the potential to earn an extra year of income compared to your contemporary. So you're out into the labour market earlier, and you're having less time out of the labour market. Also, um, some of the literature talks about having better learning outcomes, so higher satisfaction, better grades, better skill development, better employment rates and career development as a result of accelerated degrees compared to those on traditional three-year degrees. And it can signal certain skills and attributes to employers, such as dedication, motivation, time management, organisational skills, being able to deal with pressure. So that's what the literature says, but actually there's very... Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that actually, yes. Because the flip side of that is the fact that there are concerns that actually those things aren't true. And actually, um, so acting as a barrier, there are concerns that it actually leads to lower outcomes, but the um, evidence is limited or contradictory about that. So, so it's very difficult to know whether that's true or not true, but actually some of the evidence indicates that there are better outcomes from those ex from on accelerated degrees, but that's possibly to do with a selection effect and the cohort effect. So the individuals that are selected to be good enough to go on an accelerated programme and also is an interesting... Um, dynamic that involves around those on accelerated programs because they're smaller groups and they tend to sort of um, have that special feeling and they're all working through the program together. Um, so the the concerns about what accelerated degrees might um, limit the experience or lessen the outcome um, can act as a barrier for institutions but particularly for students as well to take that up if they are concerned that that might happen if they do accelerated degree. Um, there are also um, barriers talked about in terms of they have a less, less immersive HE experience, there's less time for deep learning or reflection because they're moving at pace, um, but the biggest barriers really to students t taking them up is the fact that they, they just don't know about them, they just don't know that these things exist. Um, and also they're fighting that strong cultural norm that if you go to higher education, if you go to university, you go for three years full time. And one of the other uh, worries that is raised in the literature is the fact that if in individuals are working throughout the calendar year, there's less downtime for them to be able to engage in paid work, so less time for them to be able to sort of reduce potential debts um, in that way. So the literature and case studies suggested various actions that could encourage uh, demand and supply for accelerated degrees. First of all, we have to all be quite um, clear and have a shared understanding of what it actually means, accelerated degrees, and know, ha have an agreed terminology. Then I think it's about promoting the positive messages about what accelerated degrees can do. Um, so in terms of quality and value, um, both to potential students but also to employers. 
I think we need some new market research with potential students because the context has changed, the fees have gone up, um, there's no cap on student numbers now, there was um, previously. Um, we also need some research on real costs involved to um, institutions but also students. Um, and, and we really need some national systems um, so we can follow these through the statistics. We need to be able to identify who these accelerated degree students are so we can track them, we can look at their attention, we can look at their outcomes. Um, we also want to look at staff experiences because um, I've focused on the student side really but there's lots of barriers and lots of discussion in the literature about why institutions might not want to do it and one of the big um, concerns is around the additional workload and pressures of st on staff so it's about monitoring staff experiences who are delivering these programmes. Um, and then the biggest thing that came up through the literature was it's the funding system. We can't do this because the funding system stymies us. So um, the other area was credit transfer that we looked at. So um, this is a recognised concept, but it seems to be very limited in practice. A lot of the literature around this was very technical. It was all about the structures and the frameworks. And there was a lot of discussion in the literature about the fact that actually it's all moving in different directions because of the devolved nature of um, HE in the UK. So Wales is doing something different to Scotland, to Northern Ireland. There was lots of discussion about um, how it relates to the European system, so the Bologna process and how that fits into, into um, a system. So, um, and again, we have the problem about being able to actually track and measure the amount of credit transfer, who's involved, how, um, and, and track them through the process so we can't assess the true uses of credit transfer. And then there's um, issues around what do you mean by transfer? Is it if you transfer from uh, the end of one year to another year to a different institution, so that's an immediate transfer, or within the year from <coughs> one subject to another, or is it delayed transfer? So after some time, you come out of HE and then you go back in again. So how do you how do you find those and measure those people? And then you have the uh, within university and across university transfers as well. So we looked at. Um, all the um, different conceptualisations of credit transfer, um, they all are about starting somebody with advanced standing. So they don't start right at the beginning, they start slightly further into the course using credit transfer. But there were three different main models of credit transfer. So there's the topping up, and that was talked about a little bit earlier, so it's about moving from perhaps a foundation degree to a bachelor degree. And that tends to come up in the narratives of widening participation. So this is a good thing to help with widening participation. There's um, the, a sort of model around returning to learning. So that's about using the um, APEL um, to be able to recognise what you've done already and go back into learning at a later stage. And that's in the um, narratives of lifelong learning. And then the bit that Biz was particularly interested about was about switching. So that's about student choice narrative. So it's about, I may have made the wrong choice, what do I do so I'm not locked on this path for three years? I can shift and go to a different institution. So we looked at the demand for credit transfer. Again, limited data, not routinely collected, so very difficult to find out. Um, there are concerns that institutions' record systems aren't appropriate for them to be able to identify and track these individuals. Uh, again, the data that is available tends to look at immediate institutional, tra immediate inter-institutional transfer, so quickly from one institution to another, 
rather than that sort of delayed coming back or coming back to the same institution or moving within the institution. So what the data does and the literature does suggest is that there's low real usage. I'm suggesting it's, it could also be that it's just not detectable. So there's no clear comprehensive picture, but some of the literature indicates that the numbers doing this have been falling. So really, the evidence is confusing. So there's a few stats up there, and it's just it's all confusing because it depends what you're looking at. And so a little bit more evidence. I think the bit that's kind of interesting to me is the fact that transfer rates are high amongst those um, on other undergraduate programmes rather than first degree programmes. And transfer rates are higher amongst certain types of individuals, so younger people, uh, black students, and in some particular subjects, some, for example STEM subjects. So that might be the fact that they're harder and people find, actually I'm not sure about I want to do this. And the fact that you have people who return to learning, um, sometimes back to their same institution, it's not always to a different institution. So in terms of what the literature says and uh, are the kind of the, the sell or the benefits to, to uh, credit transfer, particularly in terms of switching, is that it can support learner mobility, so that's geographical and social mobility. It re reduces the risk of dropout because people can stop out rather than dropping out. Um, so that's drop, that can reduce the risk of dropout for individual HEIs because they can get in, individuals to think about different courses or different levels of study. But it also reduces dropout from the whole system, the HE system. So I think there's a bit of an issue about the sort of zero-sum game. If you're moving people around within the system, everybody wins. But I think some institutions might feel a bit like, well, if I'm losing students I'm, and I'm not getting students back, I'm losing. So there's issues around that. Um, it seems to be more attractive and accessible to uh, widening participation groups using credit transfer. There's an argument that if you have more choice, because credit transfer allows you to, to, to move, you're not locked into the, to your initial choice, it means you can make better career decisions. It also means you can react to what's happening in your wider life or the wider environment. Um, and I think it came up in the earlier discussions, the fact that if you're doing it um, through credit transfer, and you have the ability to pause, you can, you can track and reward your progress as you go along, and that can increase your confidence as a learner. But these are all the stated benefits in the literature, but there's very little evidence to show that this actually does happen. Um, there's lots in the literature about barriers to take up. Um, there's lots about barriers to take up for institutions in terms of being able to um, offer this as a, as a facility. But concentrating on the barriers to take up among students, um, again, the big, big issue is the fact there's limited awareness. People don't realise that they can potentially do this. There's little public promotion, so at a national level that this, this is possible, but also at an in individual institutional level, because um, institutions, I think, are probably a little bit fearful that if they um, publicise that you can do this, that will encourage people to shift, and it might encourage them to shift out rather than into them. Um, Moving institutions can be seen as a risky thing to do. Maybe it's better to stay where I am, even though I'm not actually really enjoying this, because I don't really know whether if I move, I'm going to be in the same boat again. And when I was talking to the case study institutions, they said they don't tend to get serial movers. So there aren't people that just butterfly around. Uh, they, if they do move, they tend to just make that one move and then stay. 
there's a serious lack of information, advice and guidance around this. And that comes back, I think, to another question that was asked earlier about if there is, there needs to be information, advice and guidance on how to do this and which is a better choice for you. But who, who should have that responsibility? Because if it's the individual institutions, they stand to lose. Um, there's the time and resources um, to provide the evidence required by institutions to show you have the equivalency to get into the particular course. Um, and that takes time for the individual to, to amass, but also for the institution to then square that with their, their own um, course offerings. So sometimes institutions, in recognition of that, uh, have a charge for assessing equivalence, which acts as another barrier. So that was, I'll just whiz through these bits. This is stuff about part-time. So I just wanted to say, in relation to alternative uh, offerings um, and uh, ways of engaging with HE, could some of the recent changes make a difference in terms of uh, demand and supply? So these are the sort of policy policy changes. So you've got a continued focus on student choice, um, in, but we've also got um, more of a focus now on trying to drive up competition, increase competition within the sector. We've got widening participation targets. We had them, they went, we've got targets again. There's the recent call for evidence, so to try and engage the sector in thinking about these things. There's been the refocus on lifelong learning in the latest in industrial strategy green paper. That, that had kind of gone into a kind of quiet area for a while, but lifelong learning seems to be coming back. Um, and also the economic climate, so uh, recession coming out of recession, now uncertainty around Brexit. So what will these things do to um, supply and demand? And then also we've got some of these hard changes, so removing a cap on student numbers. So some of the work I did on part-time study was done in 11-12, and that's when there were caps on student numbers. So institutions had to make decisions about what they wanted to offer within their set number. You had the increase in tuition fees, so that might change buyer behaviour. Um, you have the introduction of fee loans for part-time students and planned introduction <coughs> of maintenance loans for part-time students. Um, and then the big one, which has um, recently been uh, locked in in the HE bill, is the uh, raising funding cap for accelerated degrees. And then we also have the new Office for Students and their duties that they have within their remit, which is about monitoring arrangements for transfer and to consider different forms of learning. And finally, what I think I'm interested in, what I think should happen really, is we need more research in this new context. So what do students think? What do potential students think? I think the seed funding is important and needs to continue to encourage institutions to, to take that risk to, to um, develop these new um, offerings. I think there's an, a need to share ideas and practices to come together and, and really think together about the challenges and barriers. And I think we need improved information, advice and guidance and national publicity about alternative forms of study. But we're still hitting against this cultural norm, so that's quite hard to shift in terms of how young people in particular think about what higher education study is.
Thank you.